How good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Amen? Amen. What a blessing it is to be here again. I've been coming to Twin Lakes since 2004. And this fellowship has had a profoundly formative impact uh, in my own life uh, over the last uh, many years. And I trust it will and has been for you uh, as well. um, As Terry Johnson was lamenting about his old age uh, yesterday... Having just turned 60, I was thinking about how I was 32 years old when I first came to the Twin Lakes Fellowship, and I'm now, I just turned 44 a couple of weeks ago. I've been ministering for 12 years. Yeah, thanks a lot. Uh, um, uh, Got uh, lots of gray hair, Um, not as as much as Kevin Bidwell, but I do have a lot of gray hair. But it brought to mind, even as... uh, Steve has been faithfully uh, preaching very challenging messages to us. It brought to mind that, um, brothers, uh, our time is short. Uh, having been diagnosed with thyroid cancer last January, it was uh, brought really to bear in my life. Every day is a gift. Every day is an opportunity to serve the Lord. And so, um, whether you are young and preparing for the ministry or young and having just begun the ministry, or perhaps in the middle years of your ministry, or are a a seasoned pastor entering the twilight of your ministry, be encouraged. Be encouraged, my beloved brothers, to be steadfast and immovable and always abounding in the work of the Lord, for your labor is not in vain. Insofar as you are proclaiming Christ and Him crucified from word and sacrament, insofar as you are faithfully shepherding God's people, your work, your labor is not in vain. The Lord will use it. He has promised to use it. So let us give praise to God for this. Some of the things I want to mention today in terms of church planting are going to be uh, elementary uh, to some of you, perhaps to most of you, they're, they're uh, foundational uh, principles, but uh, beloved, in an evangelical world so often driven by pragmatism and fads and consumerism and tease, it is vital that we return to the first things. And that really is what has been uh, so much about, hasn't it, throughout the years for, for all of us, uh, because we are all, as the hymn writer wrote, prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love, prone to leave the faith and the confession that we love because of all kinds of pressures that are coming in upon us and our families, financially. How many pragmatic decisions are made in ministry because of finances and struggling with people coming into the church, paying the bills? All kinds of pressures. Let us be steadfast. Let us give thanks to God for the Twin Lakes Fellowship and what it, what it means for our lives. Uh, when I'm finished uh, speaking on a few things, which I, I um, Luann was kind enough to print this out and, and have this passed out, a little sheet on an outline on in connection with church planting. After I'm finished, I'm going to be asking a few uh, uh, men to come forward, faithful church planters uh, from around this country and around the world. Uh, Reverend Dr. Kevin Bidwell from Sheffield Presbyterian Church will be coming up and joining this panel. 
uh, uh, Reverend Nick Batzig from Richmond Hill, Georgia on the East Coast, also from the East Coast, Reverend Ross Hodges from Charleston. I'll be asking him to uh, tell us a little bit about what it means to be an assistant pastor in a church planting setting and want to talk about that a bit with the panel as well, the importance of not going solo uh, because of how difficult that can be. And then uh, Reverend Brad Mills from the Central Valley, California, another foreign country, California, uh, where he's ministering. Well, the first thing I want to talk to you about uh, this afternoon is the call to church planting. The call to church planting. Some of you, you may not know, but you may be called to church planting, even those of you who are seasoned ministers. Uh, Nine years into the ministry at Grace Church Douglasville, I was trying to plant a church. And uh, there are lots of things that surround the idea of church planting, the concept of church planting, which quite frankly are just wrong. And one of those ideas is that really you need to be uh, really young, perhaps fresh out of seminary. And uh, those will be the, uh, the individuals who will have the most energy and strength and zeal and, and excitement to plant a church. And really we need to be sending those guys out. Uh, but I would, I would beg to differ, not just because of my own experience, but because of having thought through what it means to call someone with some experience in ministry, someone who's walked with people in ministry, discipled people, preached funerals, preached weddings, uh, carried out the ministry of the Word for many years and can move into a church planting setting without having to make all the mistakes that we all made as, as rookie ministers. I'm not saying that it's, it's inappropriate for young men to go into church planting ministry, but we should not be so quick to discount calling men out of established ministries to go plant churches. My question is, why not? There's a lot of wisdom to it, I think. And also, with established ministers, there are established relationships with churches. I'm going to talk about that in a few minutes. It's easier to raise money when you have established relationships, isn't it? And so it makes a lot of sense. It was three years ago that a fellow minister, a a friend of many of ours in this room, approached me uh, in his uh, tank commander, uh, West Point leadership teaching style, Rick Phillips. And he said... uh, what are you doing about Charleston? I said, what do you mean, what am I doing about Charleston? He said, why, well, I heard you have a heart for Charleston. Mel Duncan told me you love the city. You lived there once. You played professional soccer there. You met your wife there. She was there for eight years. And uh, we know we want a, uh, an ordinary means of grace, confessional church there. And uh, there, are, there are faithful ministries going there already. We're thankful for that. But this, this town has 600,000 people in the wider community. And they're expecting that to be over a million by 20." 20. I said, well, certainly pray about that. The desire, of course, was to establish a biblical church committed to reformed worship, expository preaching, warm piety, serious discipleship, and a heart for local and world mission. At the time, I have to admit, I didn't consider myself the church planting type. I was 41 years old and approaching Ten years of ministry in my congregation. Nevertheless, I, I agreed to put the matter to prayer, to get wise counsel, uh, to seek the wisdom and guidance of God's word. Over the next few months, a couple of things dawned upon me, which is what I want to communicate to you brothers here in this room. Because as I, I failed to mention, I, I want this talk to be that which informs uh, any ruling elders that might be here or, or teaching elders that are uh, seeking to 
support church planters to be able to ask the right questions and to identify the right kinds of gifts to send men out onto the field and to give them kingdom resources, much of which is, quite frankly, being wasted in the world today. We want to be careful with stewards of God's money. But also, for those of you who are young church planters, laboring, or those who may come into church planting, or, yes, some of you who have been laboring for 10, 15, maybe even 20 years in ministry, and God may call you to plant a church, to bring something out of nothing. Isn't it glorious? God's word called all things into existence, and this is what he does in his church. He calls the church into existence through the proclamation of his word. He may be calling you to do that. The first principle that really came to mind after thinking about this and getting counsel was that while all pastors may not be called to be church planters, all church planters are called to be pastors. All church planters are called to be pastors. I was not being asked to to change my calling as a minister of word and sacrament or as a serious shepherd of souls. No, I was being asked to carry out a faithful pastoral ministry in a dynamic church planting context. This is one thing that that arises, isn't it, when we think about church planting. Far too often the focus is placed upon the demographic target or, or the culture or the latest methods and techniques, the programs that we must establish in order to to grow the church. And not the godliness and confidence in the Lord and His promise to bless the ministry of the Word. God will bless the ministry of His Word. It will not return void. It will go forth and it will save and judge sinners. We can be confident of that as we go into ministry. This holds true for every pastor who endeavors in this unique calling of church planting. It makes no difference, by the way, if the, if the setting is urban or suburban or rural. There are no exemptions for church planters who neglect the work of the pastor for other sorts of activity. Never forget a friend of mine who was a PCA minister planting a church in Georgia And he was sharing with me that he got together with some of the local church planters in the community. There were several. And they were all talking about where they got their sermons from. And uh, they turned to him and said, where do you get your sermons from? He said, well, I I study and and, and prepare my sermons. (laughs) They They were very surprised at this. They were unashamedly downloading sermons, getting sermons from sermon magazines, I guess, that are published just for that very purpose. We don't go into church planting and make excuses for being too busy to be doing the work of the minister. Like all ordained ministers, church planters are called to make disciples by preaching the whole counsel of God, carefully explaining and administering the sacraments, and shepherding the flock of God through prayer and loving oversight. Now, of course, there are distinct, there are unique challenges to being uh, a church planter, to establishing a new church. It takes much time and effort, for instance, to to raise money, uh, to locate adequate meeting space, to follow up with new visitors, and perhaps the biggest one is fostering new relationships with all kinds of new people. That's that's hard. Uh, That that is a, a unique challenge, I think, and to do all of these things simultaneously. 
But these things have to be done. It's part of the call. However, these challenges are never an excuse to neglect the first things in pastoral ministry. That is studying, sermon preparation, prayer, pastoral visitation, discipleship. If the ministry of the word suffers, brothers, everything suffers. If the ministry of the word suffers, everything suffers. That is as true in an established church of 150 years as it is for a church that's been established for a week. The precedent must be set. Churches need to remember all of these things when they receive support requests. We as church planters need to remember this as well. The second thing I want to briefly touch upon is the foundation and mandate of church planting. What is the foundation and mandate of church planting? Brothers, it is the Great Commission. It is the Great Commission. Please get this. Church planting is the most faithful expression and primary application of the Great Commission. Church planting is the most faithful expression and primary application of the Great Commission. Matthew 28 18 through 20. Whatever else the church may be doing in her mission to make disciples of all nations, the establishing of biblical churches must take precedent. As my convictions on this point began to solidify, a deeper interest in leading a church plant began to grow. Turning to the book of Acts, it is clear that the disciples, the apostles, devoted their lives to fulfilling the Great Commission. But what exactly were they doing? What was their focus? You know, there's all of this missionalism. All of these various new terms that we're hearing about how to reach the world for Christ. What was the focus of the apostles? How did they respond to Christ's mandate, His mission mandate. Well, it was not by coordinating social ministry collectives. It wasn't by striving to transform the culture. They weren't looking to change the government. No, the apostles were committed to making kingdom disciples by the bold proclamation of the gospel through the unadorned means of word, sacraments, and prayer. It is so obvious that it almost sounds silly to mention it. Immediately after Pentecost, the disciples, the followers of Christ who were brought into the kingdom, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, the devotion to coming to the Lord's table. Colossians chapter 1, 28 and 29, for what does Paul strive and toil but for the maturity of the believers? Some say, hey, we need churches that are doing it this way so they can reach people for Christ, and we need churches like this to teach people, and we need churches like this for this reason and for that reason, and we need all these different kinds of churches. I say no nonsense. We need biblical churches that are carrying out the Great Commission faithfully according to Scripture. And there will be various churches that will look a little bit different here and there, of course. We're not looking for everything to be exactly cookie cutter. Things will look a little different in uh, Manhattan uh, than they will in Los Angeles or than they will in Charleston, South Carolina or in the Midwest. But there should be no question about the centrality of the means of grace. Keeping, of course, God and His Son Jesus Christ at the center. 
of church life and ministry. We see this as the focus of the apostles' ministry. It is through the foolish media that Christ communicates to us the benefits of redemption made effectual to the elect for salvation. You talk about pragmatism, brothers, it works. God promises that these means are effectual. They work in the lives of God's elect. But this gospel proclamation was not done in a vacuum or without a goal in mind. The apostles were also committed to planting churches where believers were gathered under the shepherding care and spiritual oversight of godly elders. Acts 14.23, Titus 1.5. Gifted and qualified elders were chosen to care for Christ's flock, to feed and disciple them upon the means of grace. It's within the visible church that committed lifelong disciples are made. This is precisely, brothers, why the planting and strengthening of healthy biblical churches is the primary application of Christian missions. And there are no shortcuts to disciple-making. It takes time, it takes effort, spirit-empowered effort, and it takes much prayer. It is oftentimes us taking shortcuts that gets us in so much trouble with our philosophy of ministry. The second thing in relation to this is that church planting is a daunting task, but Christ promises in the Great Commission, rather Christ promises in the Great Commission, foster confidence and comfort at every stage. Christ is building his church. We are not. Christ is building his kingdom. We are not. We are merely servants. We are merely servants. And we often forget the imperatives We often forget that the imperatives of the Great Commission, that is to go, to make disciples, to baptize, to teach, are bookended by two marvelous indicatives. You see, so often you ask people, what's the first word of the Great Commission? They say, go. No, it's not go. It's that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a promise by which we launch into world mission. Christ, our Lord, our head, our king, our elder brother, has all authority in heaven and on earth. And then at the end, of course, the Great Commission, the other bookend is that he will be with us always as we carry out this mission. What promises? What promises? As we go forth in mission, making disciples and planting new churches, we go forth with the knowledge that all authority is the Lord's. Nothing can prevent Christ from building his church. Look what's going on in China. Look what's going on around the world as as Christ is building his church. In the most surprising of places, the gates of hell will not prevail against it, Matthew 16, 18. Christ tells us that he will always be with us. Yes, church planting is a daunting task. There are many challenges, many frustrations, many discouragements, both natural and spiritual. Even so, our Lord Jesus possesses all authority in heaven and on earth, and he will be with us to the end. These are not promises to breeze over, brothers. They instill confidence. They strengthen us. They put wind in our sails. Not confidence in ourselves, not confidence in the latest ministry fads. Nope. These things produce in us a lifetime of faithful ministry. 
brings us to the third point, very briefly, the means, methods, and motivations of church planting. Brothers, faithful church planting is on God's terms. I get so tired. I've been in the kind of church planting community and talking to church planters and thinking about church planting, reading church planting books, and I, I, I get exhausted hearing about uh, the sort of the different approaches to church planting, almost like all of them are legitimate. Why? You know, we live in an age where you, just, you can't disagree with anything. You can't say anything is right or wrong anymore. We're just having a conversation, right? Oh, no, he's, he's, he's okay. This person's okay. We're just having a conversation, and really there's no right or wrong anymore. No, there is. There is such a thing as wrong church planting. There's such a thing as wrong worship. Church planting is on God's terms, not, not mine, not the culture's, not the latest successful church planter's book that he's written. No, it's on God's terms. We need to punch in the launch code from the very outset of our church planting ministries and stick with it. And we must pray the prayer, Lord, if this ship goes down, it's going to go down on your terms. There are godly, faithful men in this room who have attempted to plant churches, and in God's providence, it didn't happen. But they didn't compromise. They went down on God's terms, and God has moved them to a place where he's using them mightily. We praise the Lord for that. Christ is building this church. He's doing it through his instruments, with his materials that are sovereignly appointed and approved by him. And this should not be a surprise. Jesus is Lord and King of his church. He makes the rules. He knows what is best. That's one reason why I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, because I I love the focus on the authority and the sufficiency and the efficacy of the Scriptures in our ministries. You see, Christ, as our Good Shepherd, wants to ensure the ingathering, growth, comfort, protection, and blessing of His flock. So what are those instruments that He's promised to use and bless? They are called, biblically qualified, lawfully ordained ministers, and the means of grace, word, sacraments, and prayer. It is through God's appointed ministers with God's appointed means, all in the context of a local church, that he's promised to save, sanctify, and preserve those for whom Christ died. Again, what do we see the apostles doing? What is Paul doing? What does Paul say to the Ephesian elders as he's leaving them, as they're wiping tears from their eyes? Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock that's under your care. That for which God shed his own blood, it says. Weightiness is given to this. He preached the whole counsel of God. He said he did not shrink back from doing so. That's what he was busy doing as a church planter. He was shepherding the flock, encouraging the elders to shepherd the flock. Uh, Brothers, I don't know if it's been your experience, but those who have come into our church that are either unchurched or de-churched or under-churched, all, I believe, which are helpful terms in describing evangelicals today, almost to a, to a person, they express great sadness over no one having shepherded them, sometimes for years in the church. The first question I ask them is, who was your elder in your previous church? I, I, I have no idea. 
they say. Did you ever receive a visit from a pastor or um, staff member, elder? No, never. Was there ever any expectation that would happen? No. This is commonplace. It is one of the glaring weaknesses of the evangelical church, even the reformed church planting movement. There's a clear lack of shepherding care. That which great weight is put upon in the New Testament. Now, as we think about these things, inevitably there are those who say that the Apostle Paul's desire was to be all things to all men. That's giving Christians the green light to do whatever it takes to reach the unchurched. But this is a common misunderstanding of a text that speaks more about Paul's willingness to remove unnecessary cultural barriers than about decentralizing the means of grace. Read Decentralizing Christ. You see, if we do this, if we, if we decentralize the means of grace in public worship in order to, to grow the church, we decentralize Christ and His Word. Elsewhere, Paul makes it abundantly clear that the health and advancement of the kingdom are absolutely dependent upon this God, uh, gospel proclamation through word and sacrament. God has ordained not only the message, but also the method of preaching and bread and wine and water and prayer. You see, what people need, whether churched or unchurched, is not another rock concert or, an, or a talk show. I was visiting a church recently where it was literally like a variety show. It's in our own denomination. And it was so discouraging. And my children were so confused. (laughs) You know, looking at me like, Daddy, should we be here? (laughs) I mean, in all seriousness. There were probably 15 to 20 jokes told within the first 30 minutes of this worship service. What people need is a joyful but reverent encounter with the living triune God in public worship where the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is proclaimed all throughout a word-regulated liturgy. I wanted to read a quote by Dorothy, Dorothy Sayers. Some of you have heard this. She says this, Official Christianity of late years has been having what is known as bad press. We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much upon doctrine, quote, dull dogma, as people call it. The fact is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. And the dogma we find so dull... This terrifying drama of which God is the victim and the hero. If this is dull, then what in heaven's name is worthy to be called exciting? The people who hanged Christ never, to do them justice, accuse him of being a bore. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left for later generations to muffle up that shattering personality and surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. We have very efficiently paired the claws of the line of Judah certifying him meek and mild and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pale curates and pious old ladies. Brothers, the doctrine is the drama. The dogma is the excitement. What people need is not more entertainment. 
What people need is not more leisure, more programs for every demographic. What people need is Christ. And He is precious and He is lovelier than anything this world can offer them. Do we really believe this? There is so much nonsense in the church planting world. And we as, as reformed brethren ought to full hearts embrace what it is Christ has promised to bless in the lives of His elect. He will reach them through His Word. Will we be faithful to preach it as His heralds? That is the question. If you don't do it, if I don't do it, someone else will. And reformed worship, beloved, is making disciples. Disciple making isn't that which just happens in the coffee shop. It does happen there. But reformed worship in its concentrated form happens in public worship through the means of grace in that setting where God has promised to gather with His His people. So let let us recognize the importance of worship morning and evening for the lives of our people. Preaching, faithful preaching, sacraments, and prayer. Fourthly, a few wisdom and warnings. Number one, I'm going to go through these quickly for time's sake. If possible, plant with the support of like-minded churches. Beware of being overzealous and underfunded. You're going to get yourself into some trouble and you're going to stress your wife out. Secondly, if possible, plant with a team. Plant with a team. Take an assistant, a recent seminary graduate with bounds of energy, a contagious love for Christ, and gifts in teaching, preaching, and administration. I have one of those. You can't have them. But don't... Don't sell God short for what He can do to provide you with a godly young man to serve you in ministry like that. Thirdly, make sure your wife is all in. You know, if mama ain't happy, ain't no. Your wife needs to be all in on church planting. Believe me. Don't try to convince her along the way. Know that she's with you. And that she wants to go where you're taking her. Fourthly, as you go, reach out to fellow sister churches in the area if there are those, even if they are not happy about you coming. Reach out to them. Love them. Take those ministers out to lunch that you know have not been speaking well of you. Love them. Become friends. Pray for them. Fifthly, cultivate your own Christian piety before you encourage piety in others. Be a disciple before you make disciples. Be a Christian first, brothers, and then a pastor or a church planter. Walk with Christ before you urge others to do so. Devote yourself and your family to godliness. This is the theme of our weekend. A sincere, spirit-empowered, Christ-focused, growing, and disciplined walk with God is the rich soil out of which a faithful ministry will grow. Sixthly, this is for all of us Reformed brethren. Don't hide behind your books to the neglect of people. Oh, how we can often do this. And we put a spiritual, we baptize this. We need to spend time with people. We need to shepherd God's people. Be available for them, accessible to them. Seventh, 
It's okay to have the use of social media. It's not okay for social media to have and to use you. Be careful of time-wasting and unnecessary distractions. Brothers, there's a fine line between promoting Christ and promoting self through media. Let us beware of this. A church plant needs a visible and a a well-thought-out and a beautiful web presence. Yes, it is true. But let us be careful that it does not become an idol in our lives. The church grew. Ministries were blessed before Twitter. (laughs) And before Facebook. And before websites. You know, we, we feel so bound to them. And yet, just before Al Gore created the Internet, they didn't even exist, right? Eighth, in your membership class, make sure that you set the launch code and you clearly communicate to future members what it is the church is going to be. Terry Johnson spoke on that yesterday. It's important. Ninth, don't overestimate what God may do in three to five years and don't underestimate what he may do in 10 to 20 years. Charleston has many beautiful oak trees that didn't grow overnight. took a long time. A faithful, healthy church takes a long time. Finally, quickly, a couple of mis, uh, misguided trajectories in church planting. Let us be careful not to love the city over loving Christ. Is it possible for a pastor to love his city and the people of that city more than Christ? The answer is yes. We've seen it happen recently with City Church San Francisco putting their flag in the sand, making it clear that the culture's word is more important than God's word. If we are not careful, some of the rhetoric in our day in connection with church planting can lead us down a very, very dangerous road. Second, let us not focus on human flourishing over discipleship making. Disciple making. Let us not focus on human flourishing over disciple making. Human flourishing, from what I've read, is a kind of be-all-you-can-be narrative. What about the biblical language of deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Christ? We need to be careful not to move away from biblical terminology in order to give terminology that seems more palatable to the world and our culture, but actually sends a wrong message. People need to repent, believe the gospel, Our message shouldn't be, we want you to flourish. It's not what Christ preached. It's not what Paul preached. It shouldn't be what we preach. Thirdly, let us not think of our ministries as transforming the city. A new visitor in our church said, "Uh, Pastor John, if you keep preaching like that, the city's going to be transformed. I said, you know, I'll have to disagree with you there. I don't wake up in the morning thinking that anything I do is going to transform the whole city of Charleston. My endeavor is much more modest. I wake up wanting to be a faithful Christian, first and foremost. Secondly, a faithful husband and father. And then I want to be a faithful shepherd and herald to those whom God has placed under my care. And here's the great thing about God will bring much fruit from it. Others will have an impact as well. When we do this, those who are impacted by the preaching of God's Word, the teaching of God's Word, will go into their vocations, and they will be salt and light, and they will make an impact, and there will be parts of Charleston that will be transformed. Probably won't be a Christian city, because there's never been one, 
ever, ever, has there ever been a Christian city in the history of the world? No. Why are we talking so much about that? The focus should be on faithfulness, not transforming cities or cultures. It's sinners that need to be saved and transformed. That's our focus. At Christ Church Charleston now, we have almost 200 meeting on Sunday mornings. We have almost no programs. No bling. We're not giving out free microwaves to new members. We preach a hard gospel. A glorious and a free gospel, but a hard one. And people's hearts are being softened. There are professors from the College of Charleston and the Citadel. There's an inventor who has gone global with his robotic yogurt kiosk machine. It's in like 25 countries now. There are several gifted musicians, physicians in high places in the hospital system, Numerous officers and enlisted men from the Navy and the Marines, attorneys, real estate agents, retirees, lots and lots of children. Do you think the culture is being impacted by these people? Of course they are. But it's as they are under a disciple-making ministry where Christ is exalted through word and sacrament that they then are going out and being salt and light. That needs to be the biblical emphasis. Fourthly, Beware of relevance over faithfulness. Brothers, Christians have been irrelevant from the very beginning. Let us not try to be relevant. Let us be faithful. When I was in Italy a few years ago, visiting Andrea Ferrari, who's a, a church planter in Milan that you'll know, some of you will know, I remember the contrast between the Duomo, the and the little about 50 or 60 believers. And as I walked into the Duomo and see this glorious building that took six centuries to build, and I saw someone lighting a candle in front of a, 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 a skeleton and praying to the skeleton for their dead relative, this culture of death, but it's so glorious and powerful. And yet here's a little storefront preaching the true gospel of grace, seemingly irrelevant, seemingly with very little power, and yet with all the power of Christ. Let us be faithful, brothers. Let us be faithful to church, to plant God-centered, biblical churches, to do so with confidence and trust in our Lord. Well, if I can ask uh, my brothers to please uh, come forward. Um, Pastor Kevin Bidwell, Pastor Nick Batson, and Pastor Ross Hodges, as we spend a few minutes asking a few questions of these brothers. Okay, we're on. I always feel like I should sing a song when I'm holding one of these. 
Well, I can say, uh, as I ask these brothers to be part of this panel, these are uh, dear friends and um, godly church planters, and so we want to hear from them. And um, I want to, to um, ask very briefly if we can do this in just um, really uh, about a minute each, minute and a half each, uh, tell us about how you came uh, to be called as a, as a church planter. We'll start with Nick Batsig. Real quickly, just tell us how you came to be a church planter. Is this, this is on, yes. Um, I had no desire to plant a church. I was at 10th Presbyterian Church in 2007 and just looking for a call post-seminary and internship. And um, the Lord just closed every door. I applied for pastorates in Alaska, Hawaii, both of which would have been great. Um, I, you know, I, I just wanted to pastor a church and, um, and the Lord shut every door and I was praying that he would shut all the wrong doors. And I knew Roland Barnes, who is usually here, who is, um, sort of a visionary in our circles for church planning, really great godly man. And I called him and said, Hey, you know, um, I'm thinking maybe I could revitalize the church I grew up in on St. Simon's Island. I'd heard that they needed a pastor. And um, he said, you know, I don't think that'd be a good fit right now with what's going on. And we're looking for a church planner in Richmond Hill, Georgia, or Vidalia. And I thought, well, there's no way I'm going to Vidalia. A fish would have to spit me out to go to Vidalia. Um, Not that Vidalia's bad or anything. Well, just, Yeah. Um, but I had grown up an hour south of Richmond Hill, and I knew it was part of Savannah. I knew, I knew the area. I thought, you know, there is something about asking, is this a good fit culturally? I'm a Yankee. Don't hate me. Um, so Vidalia was a lot more southern. Richmond Hill was coastal. As Terry Johnson said, it's, it's uh, much more cosmopolitan. It's got a diverse group there. And so we came down and preached at Independent Presbyterian Church, and the Lord just made it very clear that the men of the presbytery said, we think you're the guy. And so that's how I ended up church great, planting. Great. And Kevin? How old were you when you started church planting, Kevin? 40, 44, maybe, I think. Well, I mean, obviously, context in, in England is much different to the United States. So if you're committed to recovering confessional Presbyterianism, um, and I'm part of Evangelical Presbyterian Church in England and Wales... Um, there aren't lots of vacancies, so therefore, church planting is is not an optional extra. And you know, in the sovereignty of God, at the end of a PhD, um, a potential nucleus began to develop in Sheffield, which is where I'm from. And we started with lots of zeal and not much finance, but God has been faithful to to help us. Um, so I'd say it's the sovereignty of God. But as I was talking to uh, Nick earlier on, it's good to know what you're shaped for. And I am shaped and enjoy the dynamics of a large city. It would kill me to be in a small town. So it's good to know what God's put in there. And um, yeah, yeah, there we go. Good. Brad? I felt called to ministry in high school and um, was not in a Reformed context, grew up in a broadly evangelical church. Um, in California? And in California, mm-hmm. in the Central Valley, where, where we're planting now. And really uh, knew nothing about 
theology, doctrine, reformation, just felt uh, a desire to serve the Lord in, in pastoral ministry. And as I became reformed, um, recognized that the setting in which I was worshiping was not a, a place that would be conducive to you know, planting out of. And so began kind of a hunt for five or six years until I finally found the PCA and, um, and immediately asked the, the pastor there to mentor me and to, some of you know, Brian Peterson, uh, pastor of Sierra View uh, PCA in Fresno. Uh, he came here several years as well. And then he, he's the one that kind of introduced me to Derek Thomas and got an internship at First Pres in Jackson, Mississippi. But all along, my goal was to really be trained up to go back and to plant something because of the need in California. I knew if I didn't go back, unlikely that anyone else would go back yeah. and plant something. So um, just a, a desire and a, a growing sense of the need for ordinary means of grace ministries out there. Amen. Ross? The, uh, the one thing in seminary as I was finishing up that I, that I said uh, I would not do, did not want to do, is church planting. Uh, I don't know if that's me. I apologize. Uh, but I was duped into church planting by um, a certain very convincing uh, pastor. No, it's been a delight, but um, I, I did not consider myself a church planting type I still do not consider myself uh, at this point the church planting type of some who, someone who would take the lead on that. Uh, but as an assistant, uh, it's a good fit. And so having known John uh, for a couple of years and having interned under his leadership um, when the opportunity to plant in Charleston came along uh, and he uh, you know, asked if we would uh, pray and consider uh, joining him there in an assistant role, um, that, that very quickly uh, became, uh, became a viable option, and it became clear that that is where the Lord uh, would have us be. Wonderful. Um, I'm going to ask, um, um, yeah, ask Ross to comment on this next question, also Nick. I'll ask Nick actually to comment first. How important is it to plant with an assistant and not to go solo? Yeah, tell, tell us about that dynamic. I, I felt the burden in the early years of just being alone and, and it's, it can be, and pastoral ministry can be lonely and you all know that. Um, but I do think that there's a divine wisdom in why God sent the disciples out two by two. Ecclesiastes says, I think it's Ecclesiastes. If one falls, the other can pick them up. Um, there's a boldness that you gain when you have a partner in ministry so we were on the ground floor for four years. I had no secretary, no assistant, 120 people. And mm-hmm. it was taxing. And then God brought us, my assistant Travis, who's here, who's just been the biggest blessing to ministry um, as a co-laborer. And so the exponential benefit we felt as a church plan on account of that is just, I mean, it's unmeasurable. The, the benefit of having somebody... And, you know, we've had a provisional session, which is the beauty of being Presbyterian and having that oversight and, and connectivity and accountability, but they're not on the ground floor. You're on the ground floor. To have someone with you when you're working through all those difficult decisions, what do we do now, all the dynamics, all the pastoral um, steps of what do we need to do in this situation, the challenges you face, you're not left there, and you're not burdening your wife 
because when you're on your own, it's you and your wife. And a provisional session's not there on the ground floor. So I think it's I think it's hugely important. Yeah. And if we plan a church, we would try to send out multiple people. When Rick Phillips came to me, he said, um, "We will not do this if it's just you." He demanded that if if second was going to get behind it, I would need someone to do it with me. And I'm so thankful that he he demanded that. And uh, Ross has been such a gift uh, from God to the work. I can I can honestly say. Uh, the work would not be going without Ross Hodges. Uh, so I wanted Ross, from his perspective, to share uh, kind of what he does and, and his responsibilities and those kinds of things as an, as an assistant pastor. Yeah, well, so with a church plan, of course, you have no session, you have no secretary, you, you have no youth leader, you have no college minister. Um, so the, the beauty of getting to be an assistant is that you get to assist with all of those things. And uh, with, with the relationship that, that John and I have, he has a certain set of gifts and skills, a very large set of gifts and skills, uh, but there are, he's not good at everything. And so, um, hard to believe, hard to believe. Um, so, uh, you know, for example, he told me that Twin Lakes lasted through Friday lunch. And um, so I came thinking that uh, I was going to be getting lunch on Friday, too. Um, no, but so when it, comes to, when it comes to scheduling things with the church, when it comes to, uh, you know, organizing the, the, the finances on Sunday morning and getting those collected and deposited and those sorts of things, uh, when it comes to getting social events on the calendar, uh, email chains set up and sent out, those are, those are time-consuming duties, that really he shouldn't have to be dealing with. And it sounds like Nick was having to do all that stuff by himself. And the more of those sorts of things that I can do, including having lunch and coffee with college students or medical students, um, the, more, the more of those sorts of things that I can do, the less of them he has to do and the more he can focus on preaching and teaching and support raising in the early days and uh, discipling older men in the congregation where it would be a little awkward for me to be trying to disciple them, uh, those sorts of things. So um, it's, it's very much a role, a support role. And I, there's been times when we've realized it's also somewhat of a, a buddy in, in the foxhole kind of role uh, where you need to have somebody who's got your back because you don't have a session. And so there needs to be a unity, um, a, a, a unity sort of a back-to-back where you know, we, if, if somebody is getting ready to, to, to take a swipe at us, um, and especially him, since he's the most visible, then I can hopefully be there and, and try to take, take some of that or at least help with that. Yeah, so just a big encouragement to all those who are supporting church planters or sending or going, really think hard about uh, getting someone to come with you to do that. Um, wanted to um, ask uh, Kevin uh, Bidwell, since he's in the British context, what are the distinct challenges of your context and how, what are you doing to... with those challenges? I think I'd like to add to the question the distinct challenges and opportunities. I think uh, maybe it might be helpful. Our context is very different to what you guys are describing. Um, I guess in the northern part of England there is something that's very dynamic happening with an EPCW. Bill Schweitz is here, you know, and other elders in in Durham and Gateshead have just got such a vision for church planting, which means I've never felt alone. Um, I'm not embarrassed to say that, but I guess our model is if we, when we started in Sheffield, there's nobody who was turning up saying, hey, where's first press chef or whatever. 
people couldn't even spell, you're going to laugh at this, people couldn't even spell Presbyterian when we began. It's like, has that got three or four Y's in there? <laughs> so you, you've got to really bunker down and be a hardworking farmer and a soldier and to really deny yourself and say, if God's called this, he will bring forth fruit. And so our model is more of a church planting Bible study. We don't put any time scales on that. And as that begin to, begins to develop, we then begin to discuss as elders, is it beginning to gel together to move forward to public worship services and so forth? So it's more of an organic model, I guess, for, for us in Sheffield and same for Gateshead, for Bill. Now we've got a bridgehead in Gateshead and also in Durham and in Sheffield. Now we're looking to plant churches in Manchester and Leeds within an hour. That will be more of a strawberry plant model. Yeah. So whoever will go into Manchester, they won't have the same loneliness. We'll be traveling back across and so forth. So the challenges are the joy of living and dying to recover confessional Presbyterianism and to be excited about straight down the line worship, a church with no toys in the pram. And telling people, you don't need that teddy bear here. Um, you don't need that toy here because preaching and simple worship and baptismal Lord's Supper and care, you know, for warm hearted and serious minded Christianity is attractive. Yes. How about in California? What are the challenges and opportunities there? I would say probably the, the biggest is just convincing people that church is part of your sanctification, that it's. Mm. Needed. I mean, they, they feel like they've gone to their, uh, you know, crusade or conference at, as a child or went to summer camp and prayed the prayer and, and that, that they're good. Um, and so convincing them that church is, is needed and then, and then when you get them to church, convincing them that the way you do church is also important. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, you don't have to be countercultural. You just open the doors to your church and, and preach the word and they've never heard it before. You know, and people, that's maybe an exaggeration, but so one of the most frequently, uh, frequent comments I get from visitors is, thank you for sticking to the word. Mm-hmm. Thank you for not telling us stories and jokes. And, um, and I just, you know, I'm thankful, but it doesn't, it's so out of my hands. Like, I'm not original enough, as someone was saying yesterday, to to try to be the pastor that you've, you know, you would expect me to be, I guess. I'm not going to, I'm not going to entertain you. I, this is all I have. So open the word and, and preach it. So, um, good. Well, there are certainly for every pastor in whatever context was, whether it's an established church or a church planning setting, uh, things are busy, particularly if you are engaged and working hard as a pastor. But I would say the church planting context has a lot more distractions than a lot of established churches because there are, there are secretaries sort of guarding you and, and there are people you have established relationships with that, that can wait and those kinds of things. And, and in a church planning saying there are always these kinds of distractions and, um, you know, the nursery room and the special, ed, the special ed room at the school wasn't put back properly and so you get emails from the lady, you got to respond to them. I mean, you know, those kinds of things. But we've been learning this, this week... Um, about personal piety in the ministry, we have a lot of excuses about why we wouldn't pursue personal piety as pastors, right? And probably most of our members would say, yeah, I understand that. But how do you commit yourself to personal piety as a, as a busy, often distracted church planter? Nick, we'll start with you. Well, and, and that's, a, 
That's a big question because that covers all of life. Obviously, you don't want to neglect spending time in word and prayer, family worship, obviously all the things we talk about being committed to. But I think also in relationships, you know, keeping short accounts with people, that's a big thing. In, in the last seven years, there have been many times where I've had to be the initiator with congregants, with people that are coming to the church plant. You know, I probably didn't do anything excessively sinful. Maybe I did. But, you know, in, in your relationships with people, too, making sure you're leading by being chief repenter, being the first to say, hey, will you forgive me? There have been many, many, many times where I've had to do that. So, obviously, diligent use of the means of grace. Hopefully we get that and, and not letting that slide. But I think also, you know, in, in, um, outside of the home, in your yes. relationships with people, being a godly pastor means willing to say, hey, will you forgive me? I'm a sinner yes. too. Yes. You know, I, I don't know everything, especially in church planning. I don't know everything. I'm, I'm, I have a lot to learn. Forgive me if I've offended you. Be patient. Yeah. So that's just one yeah. tiny little thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know that that could be answered a lot of ways. But I think that is important yeah. in relationships too. Kevin, tell us about your family worship. What are you doing in family worship right now? Family worship is really important, isn't it? That's where our children have really learned to pray. So my wife is from the Netherlands, so we learned a long time ago that in the Netherlands, the dad gives thanks for the food at the beginning, and then you eat your meal, and then you get the Bible open or, or the catechism, and you dis- discuss that and then pray together. So I guess family worship is an important component to recover, I think, in America as well as in the UK. is a joyful thing. As part of, uh, um, yeah, as an important fabric. So family worship's important for us and uh, nothing much more to add. One thing that was wonderful when, we, when I was on sabbatical a couple years ago, visited the Bidwells, visited the, the Schweitzers, visited the Hex in Germany. And at every point, we were having family worship in the homes. And so our children were just <clears throat> impacted them to see that we're not the only ones that, that do this. Um, I think marvelous. one thing to add to that, John, a few years ago, we crossed the threshold and thought we need to add the component of singing together. And if you don't sing together in family worship, that's a threshold to, cro- to cross. We love singing psalms and hymns as well. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, we are out of time, um, but thank you very much. And I would encourage you to get to know uh, these brothers um, and also get to know some of the other church planters in the room uh, to encourage them and pray for them. Thank you.